HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Cart Driver, Denver's home for wood-fired pizzas, fresh oysters, seasonal market plates, cocktails, and conversation. Hey, this is Hannah Forden. I'm the program manager here at Heritage Radio Network. This year, we're celebrating HRN's 10th anniversary, and I want to thank all of our listeners and members for being a part of an incredible year of food radio. We never would have made it this far without all of you. So HRN is now in its summer fun drive, and this is when we turn to you and ask that you make a donation to help ensure a bright future for food radio. Whether you listen to one show or 20, there's a reason why you keep tuning in week after week. All of our content is powered by a small nonprofit, and we rely on your generosity to keep going. Help us keep broadcasting the most thought-provoking, entertaining, and educational conversations happening in the world of food and beverage. So become a member today. To celebrate our 10th anniversary, we have some brand new member gifts available online, so I encourage you to snag your new favorite pizza-themed t-shirt or enamel pin today and show the world how much you love HRN. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate so you can snag your 10th anniversary member swag. And thank you. This is Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, coming to you live on the Heritage Radio Network every Tuesday, I don't know, 12-ish, I don't know. Roberta's Pizzeria in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join as usual with Nastasia the Hammer Lopez, how you doing? Good. We got Matt in the booth, how you doing? I'm doing fantastic. And we got uh, semi-regular special guest, Jack Schramm. Jack, the, what are you, the nail? The nail. The nail, head bartender at Existing Conditions, how you doing, Jack? I'm doing well, thank you, Dave, how are you? I'm, I'm doing alright, so uh, Jack may or may not chime in early in the program, but I have him doing some. Uh, I have him doing some work for our uh, classics in the field segment, which I may do earlier because this may go long. Uh, Nastasia is enjoying manipulating the headphones right into the microphone. That is not mouth noises, people. So you need not be disgusted. That's just Nastasia manipulating her earpieces for no reason. When Call- do we when do we downgrade Jack from special guest to just guest? Wow. Whoa. Whoa. I mean, you've been around a bunch. I said semi regular. All right. I maintain special status. Thank you. Man. Call I'm just saying I get used to him. I've gotten used to him. Is that like okay, a good thing that. or is that, that like a familiarity breeds endearing. contempt kind of a situation? The, the, the latter. Come on. Wow. 
So, uh, so Booker, my son Booker, who doesn't listen, so I can say what I like. Uh, you know, he's he's well known for doing the "Shut Up, Dad," which is now my ringtone. If Booker calls me, you'll hear it. He goes, "Shut up, Dad!" A listener very nicely made me that ringtone when he was on the air doing it. But he, uh, you know, he has <laughs> when he was younger, he wanted to hang out with this person, but he had heard the phrase. Uh, what is it called? Uh, what makes the heart grow? Absence makes the heart grow fonder. So he thought the less often he spoke to this person, the more they would like him. His girlfriend. Well, yeah, girlfriend-ish. Yeah, so he's like, he's like, I'm not going to talk to her for like two weeks. Absence makes the heart grow fonder, right? I'm like, Booker, doesn't work that way. Doesn't work that way. That's not what that means. But the reverse of that, familiarity breeds contempt, is in fact what that means. Sometimes true. Yeah. All right, all right, all right. I got oh, something. Wait. Oh, not yet. Wait, you got something to talk about, not the book. If you talk about the book, I will stab you. Okay, then I will save my book thing. Yeah, get the post-it. That's all why right, I have... All right, so, all right. people, the way to do this, by the way, if you ever have to do something like this and you're too disorganized to actually write things out, i.e. you're like me, what you do, and this is, if you come on this, if you are a writer of a book and you come on this show, please let me have the book a week ahead of time so that I can make sure I read it because I don't have books, I don't have people on with books that I don't read. Right, mm-hmm. and what I typically do then is I just take a crap ton of post-it notes and I write notes to myself and post it to the book so it doesn't ruin the book. And then I go through the post-it notes. It's a fast way to find things on the on the radio. Uh, call in your questions to seven one eight four nine seven two one two eight. That's seven one eight four nine seven two one two eight. So last week uh, on Tuesday, Nastasia and I were not here because Nastasia and I were in Detroit. And I will say and take note of this, people. Uh, they asked, uh, I was a judge of a cocktail contest, but also Nastasia was a judge of a cocktail contest. Excellent cocktail contest judge. Excellent cocktail contest judge. Right, Nastasia? Yeah, she's shaking her head yes. Much she's... to the surprise and delight of all of us. <laughs> yeah, <clears throat> yeah. Uh, and I also have to say, had a, uh, had a good time in Detroit. And I, I will say this, in Detroit, for those of you that don't, have never been to Detroit or don't know anything about that part of the United States... Uh, for some reason, which is actually known but makes no sense, it, it makes as little sense as the fact that I call liquor and fruit blended together and spun out in a centrifuge Justino. For about the same level of sense, they call uh, hot dogs in Detroit conies, mm. right? Because the story goes that there was, uh, there was a, a group of uh, Greek immigrants who came to Detroit via New York, and they were like, this is like early, early, early 1900s, and they were like... Uh, they were like, uh, well, they sell hot dogs in Coney Island. So when I get, they don't talk like this because they were A, Greek, and B, you know, maybe. But like, hey, uh, they call them Coney Island. Coney Island has hot dogs. So when they made it to Detroit, they started calling them Coney's. And I have to say, Detroit people, please, if you visit New York City, do not go to Coney Island to have a hot dog. You will be <laughs> sorely, sorely disappointed. Now, this is not an insult. I don't want to hear anything. This is not an insult to uh, Nathan's hot dogs. Nathan's hot dogs are fine, standard hot dogs, but the Coney's, as they call them in Detroit, are freaking awesome. They have uh, what uh, uh, Wurst aficionados would refer to as snap. Now, I am extremely pro-snap in a sausage, and you very, 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 very rarely, if ever these days, get a hot dog, a.k.a. Frankfurter, with some real explosive snap on that sucker. Jack, you like snap on it? Oh, you gotta have snap. Gotta have snap, but Nathan's doesn't have snap. If you hand me a caseless hot dog, we're done. 
Wow, caseless, caseless hot dog. Have you ever seen the videos, which I highly recommend watching, of the uh, fake casings being stripped off of caseless, Frank- caseless Frankfurt? Yes. It is Ugh. disturbing and mesmerizing at the same time. Uh, yeah, I've spoken on the air before about the, uh, the armor factory rancidity problem, right? Probably. <laughs> Probably? You're like, I don't know. Start. So, uh, interesting story. I think I've said this before. Matt, have I said this before? Uh, not, not with me in the booth, so I want to hear it. All right. So, uh, hot dogs, aka frankfurters, are a subset of. I can't believe I haven't told the story. Whatever, are a subset of emulsified uh, sausages where you 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 make a batter, right? I had to have told the story. You make a batter out of it. Then the batter is uh, pumped into used to be pumped into casings once the snap comes and cooked off. Um, <clears throat> so now they they often uh, strip off the casings that are used to make them. We make caseless hot dogs. So I believe it was, in fact, I know it was Armour had a giant plant that was um, making hot dogs, and everyone loved these hot dogs. They redesigned the plant, and nobody liked the hot dogs anymore. They were no good. And what they discovered, and they, I forget who they hired, they hired someone famous uh, to come in and do an analysis of the plant and try to figure out everything that was different in the new plant versus the old plant. By the way, this is good instruction for any of you out there that, one, are doing food on a, on a commercial scale, or B, need to scale a process from one uh, scale to another, or C, need to change where you're cooking. Because a lot of these kind of uh, commercial, industrial, even home processes are very finely tuned to the equipment involved. So what they discovered was all of the processes were exactly identical, uh, except for in the old plant, there was a guy whose job it was to wheel the giant carts full of emulsified meat batter from the place where the emulsified meat batter was made to where it was pumped into the casings. And uh, what, ha- what happened was is that during that transit time, it took so long. I don't know whether the guy was lazy. I don't know whether the guy was, I don't know, whether it was a long way to go. I have no idea. But there was a good bit of kind of fermentation and other kind of oxidative processes going on between the making of the batter and the pumping into the casings. And in the new factory, they no longer had that step. So it went right from making the batter into the casings and nobody liked them anymore because they didn't have that funk from the, uh, from the slight, whatever it was, fermentation, rancidity, whatever was going on. And so they had to engineer into the process that weight step to let the sausage go slightly off before they pumped it into the casings. And this is another version of one person's rancidity is another person's delicious. And you can go search, because I know I've talked about Reese's Peanut yes, Butter Cups yeah. before. Uh, anyway, how the hell did I even get on that? Detroit. Detroit has amazingly good uh, Coney slash hot dogs with good snap. I will say this, though. I said to the person, I said to the person, uh, give me this... By the way, Nastasia, how legitimate did those people look? The, with the, the white dog, T-shirt, yeah, yeah. The, the hot dog slash Coney people looked like the, this store opened in like it's called Lafayette was the place we went, and it opened in like nineteen thirteen or nineteen eleven or something like this, nineteen fourteen, and these people looked like they had been frozen in time sometime in the fifties, like with the the too tight white T-shirt, the paper hat, like the kind of the awesome voice, the look of. I make hot dogs all day long. All I do is hot dogs all day long. They give you this look. They have a look in their eye. Like, 
it's like they don't even really see you. They see straight through you to the billion other customers they've given hot dogs to before. You're just like, you're just like, in other words, like the hot dog is a constant. It's like a zen of hot dogness where it's just like, there is no actual interaction anymore. It's just, it's just you, space time continuum, and the dog. I think they're just immediately assigning a number to your human form, which is two hot dogs. Yeah, yeah, maybe. That guy's going to eat two. Yeah. Right, She's right. one, four. Right, but like, in other words, like, I don't even think that they live in time. I think that they are <laughs> suspended in space-time. The dog dimension. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like the hot dogs, somehow there's a flux in and out of hot dogs and people, but it's all kind of just agglomerated because they have this look in their eye, faint smile on their face. <laughs> dogs. Yeah, not like super happy, just a faint smile of like, this is how life works, dogs. Anyway, uh, the one mistake I made was I said, I, I said, how do you how do you have them? And they put the they put chili on them, and I wish they hadn't had the chili. The chili was good. I wish I'd had one chili dog, and I wish the other ones had just been sauerkraut and uh, and mustard. So you can experience both. So I could experience both. Yeah, that was the one. But uh, also, we were at the lady of the house. Talk about the winning cocktail. Why don't you talk about the winning cocktail? No, well, it's surprising. That's yeah, why. but you're 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 a judge. You're completely authorized to stop to talk about the hot dog. I mean, the the, uh, the cocktail. And maybe if you're talking into the microphone, you'll stop shaking the microphone table with your foot. I have slapped Nastasia in the leg about thirty times this show alone for hitting the microphone so hard with her feet that they wobble millimeters. I haven't heard a thing. I don't know. You gotta slap harder, Dave, or the mics won't pick it up. Well, I'm trying to be, you know, I'm trying to be supportive. Anyway, let's talk about the cocktails, Nastasia. First of all, talk about what the competition was. Chefs making cocktails. Okay, the microphone's here. (laughs) Chefs making cocktails. Well, you want to be a little more kind of effusive or demonstrative what's going on? Detroit chefs making cocktails. Boom. <laughs> okay, normally in a cocktail contest, you have bartenders make... Jack, you want to explain how a cocktail contest works? So usually works? in a cocktail contest, it's a bunch of bartenders that make a lot of drinks a lot of the time making drinks. Right. And this was... The twist was it wasn't going to be kind of one of these cutthroat cocktail contests between bartenders, which are a lot about show. What percentage of a cocktail contest, Jack, is about the drink? Is there a number less than zero? <laughs> yeah, right. A, well, the, a lot of it is a who needs to win for whatever reason, whether they think they can sell the drink depending on the contest, and then how good your tap dance is, and how well that tap dance fits into whatever they're trying to push. And not to say that those things aren't important also for you know the various marketers who run these cocktail contests. Everybody's got everybody's to eat. Everybody's got to eat, which, by the way, is going to come across in the, uh, in, the, in the book we're reviewing today. Oh, yeah. Um, but... This contest was a little bit different, and it was supposed to be kind of more lighthearted and friendly because, you know, chefs were invited to do the cocktails. Now, I don't know why it would be more lighthearted and friendly. Oh, I know! Chefs don't respect cocktails, that's why. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Burn. Actually, it used to be chefs didn't respect cocktails. I think chefs are more and more respecting cocktails as the years go on. I think they realize that it's a... it, It is... That there are people in the cocktail world that spend just as much time thinking about cocktails as, you know... They think about other things. Anyways, so, and it was for charity. So you, you know, you, the chefs came in, they made their cocktails, and then they did charity. And we ended up voting for a, uh, a, a melon cocktail, which you know, Jack, I would not like, but it was a well-made yeah. cocktail. If you are a chef, and by the way, it was uh, Chef Kate from Lady of the House who was the person 
former FCI grad. Mm. Yeah. She, it was her idea. She set it up. I think we're going to try to do one in New York. What do you think, Jack? Chefs making cocktails for charity at existing conditions. What do you think? Yeah. I think we're going to try to do it in New York. Sounds great. It's going to be fun, right? Yeah. Yeah. So here's a word to. Oh, man. Can I, oh, I can't wait to clown on these people, especially if I know them. Oh, well, oh, delicious. All right, look. The chefs, were, in general, were very good at coming up with kind of flavor combinations as they, you'd think they would be. Yeah, it's their job. Yeah. But here's what they are not good at. <laughs> <laughs> they had to make four drinks for the judges, right? First of all, chefs are terrible at wash lines. They don't <laughs> understand the idea of a wash line. So There's for the no wash line on a plate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Although you, they do understand if I give you the giant piece of short rib and Nastasia the tiny piece of short yeah. rib, then Nastasia is going to get bent. Yeah. It's an eight-ounce short rib. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like, yeah. So, like, here's the deal. So, a wash line, for those of you that never had to kind of think about bar service, is where the cocktail hits in a glass. And if you serve me a very short pour and you serve Jack a very long pour... One part of me says, wise, because he can consume more liquor than I can at this point in my life. Another part of me says, hey, I'm paying the same amount as this jamoke, i.e. zero at the contest, but hey, I'm paying the same amount, give me the same amount of drinks. So one, they weren't focused on wash lines. Two, they hadn't practiced making four drinks. None of them had practiced making four drinks, so almost no one had the, the two-handed like quadruple shake down. So they were almost all under shook because no one had told them that shaking is actually doing something. It's not a, it's not flair. So Jack is a, 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 to my chagrin, loves a little bit of bar flair oh, at the yeah, bar. Oh, so good. The man cannot lift a bottle without spinning it. It's just not in his nature. If there's a cap on the bottle, bottle going to be spun, yo. Oh, yeah. And like, and the thing is, is that I think people who don't do this for a living perceive all of this stuff as just flair. Oh, it's just tomfoolery back there. Yeah. Shaking your drinks. <laughs> Stirring your drinks. We had a couple of very, very lucky misses because when you're, okay, so when you're shaking a drink, you take the two tins, one tin fits inside of the other, you hit it, and then you form a vacuum seal and you shake it. But as we all know, you could get a leaky, well, no, we don't all know. As some of you know, you could get a leaky tin set, and if you have a leaky tin set, there will be no seal. And then if you're just holding the big tin and you shake it, the little tin can shoot off the back and stuff could go everywhere. So I saw a couple, I saw a couple no lockdown with the finger shakes, Jack. Ooh. No explosion, so. Wow. Saw a couple towards the guest shakes. Yes. Which are hilarious when they go wrong, but mm -hmm. no mishaps. No mishaps. Uh, and I thought the flavors were uh, very good overall. Mm -hmm. Very good. What do you think? Mm -hmm. yeah? we'll talk about the one you didn't like. No, I'm not gonna call out it. No, Nastasia. I don't know. Nastasia has never been on the training on any of our uh, uh, any of our trainings, I guess. Because and even if she was, she wouldn't be paying attention. But it, you never talk negative about another chef or bartender. Nobody listens to this show, Dave. Just tell her. <laughs> no, you never do. You never do. It's it's a rule we have. You don't do it. It's hard enough in this industry to make a freaking living. Why would you take anyone down, right? Now, I will take down – there's like a couple of people that are on my list where I will take them down in public, where I will say bad things about them in public. But it's a very, very, very short list, and none of them are chefs or bartenders. So, anyway. Um, so I, I, I like to try to go back. Oh, talk about the uh, bar we went to that we enjoyed. 
the smell bar. Yeah. Uh, Sfumato is the perfumery. I forget what they call the... I don't remember. The bar when they opened it up. But it's an interesting idea. They had a perfume shop in, um, in Detroit. And it's in a basement. And they spent crazy amount of energy outfitting this perf- and it turns into a bar but it converts in the way that a Murphy bed or the way that a motorhome converts from like driving or eating to sleeping so like when they turn it from a perfume shop into a bar like all the tables flip down out of nowhere and all of a sudden they have all these seats and it's in this basement and all of the the lamps are custom stained glass lamps that represent uh, aroma molecules and then there's like Morse code talking about uh, aroma and flavor in the bar. What was the quote? Do you remember? I don't remember. I'm looking. Anyway, amazing place. Uh, husband and wife team run it. Uh, and so what they do is they sell perfumes during the day. And then at night, they have uh, drinks that are all based on not using the perfume, which although we'll get to that later, not using the perfume, but based on the uh, aromas that they make in their perfumery business. And so they'll, they'll, basic, they'll spray either on the base of the glass or on the napkin or sometimes on a tester strip. Uh, the, and, they, and they have a non-alc for each one too. So they do a non-alc pair and an alcoholic pair. And you have the scent and the, and the drink at the same time. And I thought it was kind of a, I thought it was a great place. I had a great time. And they said that, well, you know, it's very hard to get someone to show up at your perfume shop and spend an hour, like, thinking about the different scents and aromas that you make. It's just kind of, they're kind of in and they're kind of out. So the bar came to it because they were like, well, if someone's sitting in down and having a couple of drinks, I can get them to think about the aromas for a couple of hours. So all in all, I have to say, <clears throat> a lot of cool and interesting stuff happening uh, in Detroit. Uh, you have anything else to report about Detroit? No. Anything about Motown? Oh, Stevie Wonder's favorite candy. I can't remember. Oh, my God. So we go to Motown. I'm going to get in some big trouble here. This is something I probably shouldn't bring this up. I'm not going to bring it up. The glove? Well, let's just say that in Detroit, it's still (laughs) cool to be very pro-Michael Jackson. Apparently, none of them have seen the recent video. I will just leave it at that. So, like, they're still at the Motown Museum very pro Michael Jackson, and they started. They have a glove there, one of his gloves, and the tour guide who was very, how should we say, bouncy, bouncy. <laughs> Anyone who is short of stature, she called a shorty doo wop. Any shorty doo wop, shorty doo wops. We're like, whoa, whoa, whoa! You need to chill out. It's hot <laughs> as hell in here. You must chill out. You know what I mean? But like, so like, uh, <laughs> right or wrong, Nastasia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was Is like, Dave a shorty doo Uh No, I was a medium doo Okay, okay, okay. Yeah, but like, like aggressively bouncy. And um, she shows us Michael Jackson's glove. And she's like, there's still DNA in that glove. And Nastasi and I immediately think oh. this conversation's going a different way. We think it's going a different way. And she goes... So maybe we can clone him again and have another Michael Jackson. And Nastasia are like, that's not what we thought you were going to say. That's definitely not where we thought this was going. Yeah. Stevie anyway, so, uh, and we saw the, it, you know, the, the best part about it, honestly, is you see the studio where so many amazing songs were, uh, were recorded. Uh, all the way up through, I think they moved. They moved out of that recording studio somewhere between '68 and '72 when they moved to uh, LA. But just 
hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of amazing songs recorded in this studio, which is really it's a tiny little studio. Mm-hmm. And they have the drum kit that Marvin Gaye played, and they have the vibes that Stevie Wonder played, and the microphone cords are still hanging from the ceiling. Amazing. Uh, it's a crappy little studio. Mm-hmm. I mean, compared to modern stuff, but it's just, I mean, it just goes to show, it's not crappy. You know what I mean? It just goes to show what you, you know, all this amazing stuff in this little place. So here's the good story and the food-related story why this is coming out. So, uh, you know, Miss Effusive Tour Guide was saying, so Barry Gordy put a candy machine in and told the candy guy, when you refill it, you can refill it in any order you want, but just make sure that slot four is Baby Ruth. Always put, always put Baby Ruth in slot four. And she goes, the reason, and she pantomimes, this is how nutty she was, she pantomimes a blind person using the candy machine. And she's like, because little Stevie Wonder would come out, put in his 10 cents, and then she pantomimes him slapping the knobs and counting in order, pulls number four, because Stevie Wonder's favorite candy, Baby Ruth. Baby Ruth. Second favorite candy, Twizzlers. So if you ever get to meet Stevie Wonder... Baby Ruth and Twizzlers, at least when he was a young boy. Favorite video game, Atari. Uh, that's not a true story. <laughs> there is a fake Stevie Wonder Atari 2600 advertisement on, which is amazing. And my other Stevie Wonder story, which I don't have a right to tell you, is that Nastasia knows for a fact that when you get Stevie Wonder on the phone, he likes to flap his mouth. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right? Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. Stevie Wonder flapping his jaw. Uh, all right. <laughs> So, uh, Ken Ingber wrote in an essay about French service. But Ken, I enjoyed reading it. It is too long to read on the air. If, if you want me to read, people, your thing on the air, you have to keep it relatively short. But the short of it is, is that he disagrees with Nastasia liking uh, French service. He prefers restaurants that are run by French people in non-French environments where they have a more relaxed service environment. And he talks crap about a restaurant, which is another reason I can't read it. He talks crap about a restaurant where I know some of the people that work there. Which yeah. restaurant? Yeah, See? Tell you Don't you wish you knew? It's the same exact voice I'm going to use <laughs> for the segment we're going to do in a minute. Uh, let me put my glasses in so I can read this question. My eyes just get worse and worse. Okay. Hello, everyone in the studio. Are there are essential oils safe to use uh, on cocktail garnishes to add fragrance if properly diluted? Nastasia, can you stop spilling coffee everywhere? Sorry, it's her coffee. What coffee are you drinking, Nastasia? I don't know. Well, Jack, when you got her the coffee, what was the what was the order? Okay, so Nastasia likes the worst possible coffee that you can imagine. Specifically, in the same way that my grandpa could blind taste the worst yeah. wine in the world. So, <laughs> I attempted Thank you. to, uh, she likes whole milk and some sugar, and it's like a, a specific ratio that I've managed to, I think, dial in at this point, but this place only had skim and cream, so I had to do a delicate ratio. Oh my god. Delicate ratio was not my band's name <laughs> in high school, nor was it my nickname. There, there's nothing about me that is delicate ratio. Um, alright. So... But it's well known that she likes bad coffee. Oh, yeah. Worst possible, especially if it's affiliated with the band. Check out this. Check this out. Nastasia Lopez and I are in a diner. And by the way, <laughs> what's the name of that diner? The Clique in Detroit. And they had the, we had like, like huge piles of fried yeah, cinnamon yeah, yeah, yeah. rolls. 
and uh, with, with like goopy frosting all of them good these things called skillets but Nastasia says in the Midwest no one gives you milk so she said to the waiter 89 times milk 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 for the coffee and then I'm like Nastasia what are you talking about she's like in the Midwest they only give you these creamer things I was like because of what like they have creamers on the coast too it was just she has this weird idea about the I just wanted to make sure and then she spilled the milk all over me <laughs> she punched the milk pitcher. into me all over me. And I was like, something I don't care about is again causing me problems. All right. Interesting pilgrimage if you're in Southern California. The worst coffee of all time that I think could possibly ex- like I it's it was it must have just been like old tea and darker brown food color. I don't know how they did it, but they made it. What was, do, you, do you remember the name of the it's diner? It's a cute little diner by LAX. It's a, it's a super cute diner. Really lovely diner, really close to the airport. I can probably find it. Like how stale was it? Don't get coffee on my book, please. It's extremely bad. valuable. It wasn't that bad. It was great. No, it was... Well, she loved it. It was, I loved oh, it. It was perfect. It was exactly what we needed in the front of that van. What year was that coffee no, made? Co- uh, probably like 84? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah 85, yeah, yeah, yeah. maybe? So what this diner does is they buy the pre-ground, like, you know, big number oh, 10 yeah. cans, yeah, yeah, yeah. then open it and let it breathe for a while. For a couple of years. Yeah, yeah, and then, they, and then they make it. It was cheaper because we bought an open case. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you don't like monsooned coffee, do you, Jack? <laughs> it's not my favorite. It's not what I would drink. I don't think that people drink a lot of monsooned coffee. I feel that was a thing like 10 years ago. You familiar with monsooned coffee? What it, What is this? So monsooned coffee, what happens is is the, the beans in their green state are left in bags and then you know kept over like a wet season in like storehouses and they swell and turn kind of yellow and then you roast those and then they have different kind of and then a lot of people are like yeah it's the note of spoilage from the bats is this it <laughs> but some people like monsoon coffee i don't mind i mean it's, yeah. it's interesting it's different anyway pan's coffee shop i haven't seen a lot of monsoon coffee recently Anyway. Yeah, the food looked great at this diner. Did like, you didn't eat the food? We were picking we you were up. Picking you up. We were picking you up. How did that work out? <laughs> great. It, <laughs> yeah, worked out, yeah. it worked out exactly how we wanted it to. Here's the thing. You ever watch the, the TV show from the 70s, The Banana Splits? Yeah. Yeah. Na, 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 Anyway, so like... They're all in these little yeah, buggies kind of driving around, so right? And, it's so good. And that was Jack and Nastasia <laughs> trying to pick me up at the airport because Oops, they, would just go, the they would just go in any other lane other than where I was to pick me up. And so, like, I was just singing, like, the banana, the banana, you know, uh, you know, banana split song and, like, watching them, like, kind of just keep tooling around the airport in their, in their Westphalia. Oh, man. Minivan. All right. Are essential oils safe to use as cocktail garnishes to add fragrance if properly diluted? Are there any safety procedures I should be following? And what's a reliable source of information about the culinary uses of these extracts? Um, Because I would like to start using aromatic oils on cocktail garnishes. I thought this would be straightforward because in my mind, these are just extracts of oils you eat all the time. Unfortunately, it seems that the alternative medicine in quotes, community, has saturated the internet with so many claims on this topic that I can't find a source I trust. There are two major categories of claims. One, essential oils can be used in place of medicine. I don't care about these claims because I use real medicine. Listen, don't be judgmental. 
Uh, although I agree. Uh, that being said, it'll be interesting to know what research has been done on the topic. And two, essential oils can be harmful when used in food. This is concerning to me. The sites uh, claim uh, that these come from don't seem reliable. No, all, there are no reliable sites published by, unless you see a reference. Look, if you want to spend a really crappy day of your life, go look at health claims for, uh, for anything. For anything. It, like, they're so disconnected. Just dip your toes in the Dr. Merkela waters of garbage health information on the internet. We should just, you know, like, if I would one day do an entire show just devoted to making fun of and debunking crazy butt health claims on the internet that have no basis in reality, except you could do it for about 36 hours in a row and not make a dent in the vast quantity of garbage information there is there on the internet. Uh, And that's not, like... I'm not talking about things that I have opinions about. I'm just talking about logical inconsistencies and clearly misrepresented, quote-unquote, facts uh, that are put out there. Um, But that said, uh, I will say this. Um, Oh, the one that you bring up is uh, pretty dramatic claims like celery seed oil causing miscarriages, etc., etc. Here's the thing. Uh, As uh, is well known, and Harold McGee talks about a lot, and a lot of people talk about a lot, Um, A lot of the weird things in plants are extremely toxic in high quantities, in in high concentrations. Uh, So a lot of the things that we take uh, as flavor components, like like the flavor of mint, is put there so that bugs don't eat the mint, right? It's toxic to bugs in, like, large quantities. So because a bug, presumably, is going to use mint as 100% of its daily diet, it's getting a lot of that kind of carvone molecule that you're getting in rather small quantities. And as a test of how, what it's like to be a bug, I encourage you to do this. Buy 100%, only do this if you're really kind of a freak show like I am. <laughs> Buy pure mint oil. Put some on a spoon and then put it in your mouth. Then you will know what it's like to be a bug eating mint in terms of concentrations. It is, shall we say, Unpleasant. Oh, did I tell you about a business idea? No. Uh, yeah. You have, you have two the callers on the air, too, so, uh, or not on the air, obviously, but yeah. Uh, uh, Just tell the business idea real quick. Uh, so, get this fireworks. Okay. Fireworks that are, when you shoot off fireworks, plastic crap is everywhere and little paper stuff and it doesn't and it it doesn't go anywhere and you have to clean up i know this because i was cleaning this up in the house i moved out of yesterday so it's like paper everywhere so get this pyrodegradable is the business pyrodegradable now listen to this so jen's like jen who is you know my wife is biased against people who shoot fireworks because she's not a fireworks person. So she's like, I don't really know. She doesn't talk like that. <laughs> I don't really know that the demographic that shoots fireworks is the, is the demographic that cares about the earth. And I was like, listen, here's what you do. You lobby to make it the law so that you have to shoot pyrodegradable stuff. So first thing you do is you create pyrodegradable, the company and the trademark, and then you lobby for it to be the law that all the fireworks sold have to be pyrodegradable. Boom. So it just burned to nothing? Well, so that it, like, it, it decomposes within like two weeks of like being out in the rain and the wet and stuff like this. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, plastic particles everywhere, biodegradable dyes. Do you think that you'll have problems with safety of like the tubes, like the fireworks apparatus? I don't know if you know this. The internet is a series of tubes. That's true. That's a fact. Yeah. Well, maybe the tubes take a little longer to degrade. Yeah. But that's also the tubes aren't like... The tubes aren't littered all over your lawn. You could pick true. the tubes up. Reuse a 
Okay. Reuse the tube, Jack! Uh, P.S. Don't reuse the tubes. <laughs> don't, don't reuse listen, the tubes. Listen, 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 fireworks people. <laughs> if you're buying reloadable mortars, there are very specific tube requirements for reusing the tubes. Please don't <laughs> Wait, reuse them, the thin cardboard tubes. Tell them our dream when we get rich, what we're going to do. Nastasi and I have decided a new kind of rich. Not necessarily helicopter rich. Helicopter rich means that you can take a helicopter wherever you want uh, so you don't have to deal with traffic. We don't want to be helicopter rich. You we don't wa- want to be. Well, it's not the goal. The goal is to be Grucci rich, where we can hire the Gruchis, the, the fireworks family, the Gruchis, to make a fireworks display for us, and then we can stand right next uh, to them. And as no they smiley let faces. No smiley faces. That's just garbage. <laughs> smiley face, smiley face in a fireworks demonstration. It's just a trick. It was good the first time I saw it 10 years ago. I never need to see one again. Never need to see it again. Yeah. Not a good firework. Anyway. Uh, also, Nastasia and I, Detroit splits their fireworks money with Canada, believe it or not. So they don't do it on 4th of July because Canada Day is close to the 4th of July, but not exactly the 4th of July, Canada. So, like, Detroit sets it off in between Canada and the U.S. in the water, and they split the money with Canada, and so it's not on the 4th of July, so we also saw their fireworks. This episode is brought to you by Cart Driver, Denver's home for wood-fired pizzas, fresh oysters, seasonal market plates, cocktails, and conversation. Tucked in a 640-square-foot shipping container space in the heart of Denver's Rhino neighborhood, Cart Driver is the perfect place to stop in for an Italian-style spritz, Prosecco on tap, and a wide variety of tinned fish. Open for lunch, dinner, community hour, and late night seven days a week, Cart Driver is here for you with fresh, domestically sourced ingredients and above all, hospitality. Learn more at cart-driver.com. Caller, you're on the air. Uh, so you've you've, you've uh, talked about your cowboy grill in the past, yeah? Love it. Okay, yeah. So I think I have the same one. It's like a big fire pit with a grill on top. Yeah. Comes have you, have you ruined the grate pack. yet? Yes. Yeah! That means you're doing it right. <laughs> yeah, So I, so on that... What would you do to it to uh, crank out a whole bunch of pizzas? Uh, so, I mean, uh, I mean, for like a pizza, right? Like the only way I've seen people do actual grill pizza, unlike the egg grill pizza, is to have uh, they put a stone on, then you can par set the dough on the stone, and then you um, and then you top it and put it on. But the problem is, is that the, the way that I use the cowboy grill, you could do – the cowboy grill is large enough so that you could just have the heat on the one side, build some sort of dome to go over it, and then dome it over. But I think you're probably much better off just getting one of these dedicated small pizza ovens like Kenji keeps pushing that I don't – I've never used them. I've always wanted one. I no longer have an outdoor space because I no longer have a place where I have an outdoor space. But I've always wanted to use it. You could get it done, but uh, getting the top and bottom to be perfectly in sync – on a cowboy grill. I mean, the good news, like I say, cowboy grill big enough to get a temperature gradient, but that means that you have to create the other side so hot that the radiant off the dome, which, by the way, doesn't exist because your cowboy grill didn't come with a dome, is enough to right. get the uh, the pizza cooked on the other side. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, my question was going to be, like, what materials you'd use to build a dome, but if that sounds ridiculous, it's ridiculous. Well, I mean, I mean, it's really big. I don't think anyone, like, the biggest sp- spun tops for like a walk like are not big enough i mean you could find hey you know what you could do 
go to a hotel supply place and measure your grill, and they make stainless steel bowls yeah, big that, enough that for was, this. Yeah, that's where I was headed. I, I walked in. I remember I did a thing at Denver, and I had to work in a giant hotel, giant hotel, and their smallest bowl was enough to toss several small children in. <laughs> so, like... And then just drill a hole through that and put a heat-proof handle on it, and then you're, uh, you're as we say, GTG. Good to That's go. all you need for a lid? doesn't need more insulation or anything like that? Nah. Nah! But oh. if you want it to be reflective, I mean, think about it. Like, when you buy a lid for a wok, it's like spun aluminum. Like, you want it to be relatively reflective because you want it to reflect the stuff back down. But, I mean, you're not, you're not making a retained heat masonry oven. You know what I mean? Right. You could, if you want, like embed something uh, in the coals, heat it up real hot, and then hold it over the pizza, old school salamander style. That will work. Mm. But you know what that is? That is a P-I-T-A. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. In other words, at All that right. at that Thank point, I would just assume getting the small pizza oven. You know what I mean? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. All right. Take care. All right. Bye. Uh, we have anyone else or we lose the other caller? No, nah, we lost that one. All right. So, uh... Essential oils. So a lot of things are very harmful. First of all, some some essential oils are stuff that are not foodstuffs, fragrances that are not foodstuffs. Be wary. But things that, for instance, eugenol, right? You can buy eugenol, like oil of clove. A little bit of it, very diluted in alcohol, like super diluted in alcohol and sprayed on, not going to be a problem. You consume a lot of it and, and real problems. Um... The issue with them is that it's very easy to overdose. I would go, and I find that a lot of people that use these things, it's easy to over overuse them, uh, and also they are unpleasant when used in uh, high quantities. Uh, so just I would just be careful of that. But things that are made from foods that are diluted down to this, uh, the especially like in general, I would say you're probably okay. I don't use them because. Nah. I don't use them, but I know a lot of people that use them. Audrey Saunders uses them. Mandy Aftel uh, sells, uh, you know, from Aftelier Perfumes, sells uh, fragrances that are completely naturally derived that, are, that you can be used in food systems. All right. Okay, so since we don't have time for more questions, we're going to go on to this week's episode of Classics in the Field. Yeah. Yeah. This week, we have... Uh, let me tell you quickly how I got to this one, right? Because it's kind of a long journey. So um, Karen Hess, irascible, now dead uh, writer of kind of Americana and history of Americana books, uh, did a reprint of uh, the Carolina Rice Cookbook, which was put out by a Miss Stoney in 1901 called uh, The Carolina Rice Kitchen. Now, uh, The Carolina Rice Kitchen, I think the subheading was uh, African Influence. And interesting book. I read that. Uh, that eventually led me actually to, right, right when it became published, a book you should all read called, although it might be outdated now by this point, Black Rice, a, you know, the, a, an early history of how, you know, rice came to be in uh, South Carolina. Anyway, so embedded in this book, and this is how I operate, embedded in this book, which came out in 1998, is uh, a single thing about rice birds. Now, what happened was, is that rice birds were this, uh, they're actually the bobolink, which is a bird that still exists. They're a ground nesting bird. They're completely protected now. You cannot kill one for any reason, right? This is why I was interested. Um, so rice is not, 
not ancestral to South Carolina, right? It was it was planted by humans starting in the I forget whether it's late 1600s or early 1700s, but it was planted by people relatively recently in South Carolina. Uh, so these birds, the bobolinks, right? These uh, AKA rice birds, they were flying because they're what's called passerine birds. They fly long distances. They migrate from. Uh, you know, the north of the U.S., like New England, I think all the way up to Canada, and they migrate all the way down to South America. And kind of when they make it down to South Carolina, they're hungry because they've been flying a long time, but they've never seen anything. They've never seen anything as rich as the South Carolina rice fields. So they would descend in giant swarms down and just eat and eat and eat and eat and eat and eat and eat. eat. And they would get so fat and they were so numerous that the old legends were that if you took a shotgun and fired it into the air, that like 30 of them (laughs) would fall down in one hit. And people would eat them much like the ortolan, which is how I got interested in it. So the ortolan is a bird that's eaten whole. And it's also a passerine bird in France. It migrates from uh, north of Europe down through France, I think, to Africa. And those are eaten whole. And that's the famous one where that was uh, Mitterrand's last meal and that you have to cover, cover your face. Yeah, hide so, yourself from hide God. Hide yourself from God to eat it. And they're roasted whole and you eat them bones and all. And those ones, because the French are, you know, they're kind of tweaked out a little bit, they, they drown those in, uh, I believe it's Armagnac. I think it's Armagnac. I would go Armagnac. Could be Cognac, but I think it's Armagnac. They drown them uh, and so that you don't lose anything inside. They roast them whole and then you eat them. Always wanted to have one, never had one. Are there any birds that exist that are not endangered that you can eat like that? So the bobolink, not endangered, but, well, maybe now. Can't eat it. You can't eat it. Well, here's why. So anyway, so like... The other thing was is that when one died and hit the ground, apparently they were so fat from eating the rice. So ortolans, they, they, they capture them alive and force feed them to make them fat. Feeding feeding them and feeding them and feeding them. For those Wu-Tang fans out there. <laughs> and uh, so, but these rice birds would naturally feed themselves to the same point that ortolans would be, so much so that when they hit the ground, they would burst. Or as they oh. used to say when I was learning German, ich platze bald. <laughs> so like they hit the ground and like they kind of blow up. And... Anyway, so there's these, these magic birds, and here's what happened. So, uh, at, like, there was a hurricane that wiped out the rice crop. Um, aside from the fact that, you know, um, rice in South Carolina had to be harvested uh, manually because they didn't have machinery that could go in there and do it. So there, rice really dropped down a lot. So then after this hurricane, it wiped out the rice industry in, I think, like ni- in the early 1900s. And then simultaneously with that, they passed a law that stops you from shooting any birds other than specific game birds. And so they became illegal to kill these bobolinks. Ironically, the majority of them, are their ground-nesting birds, are killed by lawnmowers now. Like, oh. So lawnmowers are pulping these birds on the regular. Now, when I found this book and researched it, I read, I I called every single country on the flight path, the consuls of every single country on the flight path of the Bobolink from the United States to Brazil to figure out, including the islands, if any of these people still ate these suckers so I could get a hold of one and see what it was like to have a rice bird. Answer, no. Answer, no. Uh, but, but which one, which country has the most lax laws? I don't know. I don't know. Because well, a lot of people have laws, but they don't really enforce them. You yeah. know what I mean? You can't just ask the consulate that question. Hey, but yeah, but if I do this thing, am I in trouble? Who's, who's asking? <laughs> who's asking? <laughs> Why? 
That's like when I called the Secret Service once and I asked them <laughs> when the because I live in New York. Story. I live in New York, right? So I I told this last week. No, I told it to you ago. personally. I never said it on the air. Did well, I talk no, about no. the Secret no. Service on the air, Matt? No, no, no. Stassi can't tell between her personal life and the radio show. That's really sad for her. <laughs> uh, so what happened is, is that like the president was coming to town. This was, I guess, this was Clinton, right? So like when I was, li- you know, just moved to New York, and I had a car still, and the president would come to town, and they would tow all the cars in the path, but they wouldn't let you know what the path was for security reasons. So I called the Secret Service, and I'm like, hey, if you tow my car because the president comes by it, one, do you, how do you let me know where you put it? And two, who pays for the tow? Because I don't really think it's my fault. And the guy's like, why are you asking? I just want to know who pays the tow. I don't know, and if I knew, I wouldn't tell you. Why are you asking? I'm like, hey, the guy was being so aggro. I think it's a legitimate question. <laughs> who pays for the tow? Dave, you didn't get towed. But he coulda. <laughs> but I coulda. And I think it's an interesting question. It is. That's, that's fair. I mean, New York City is such an affront on everything when someone, I mean, I've had human waste, like, wiped on my car when they, you know, I've yeah. had, like, anyway, New York. So I came upon, in my studies, a book called The Market Assistant, uh, written by Thomas F. DeVoe, uh, published in 1867. Now, he originally wrote, he originally wrote a book uh, called, I think, just uh, The Market, published in 1862, just prior to the American Civil War. But he wrote a book called The Market Assistant um, in 1867. And the very first thing you notice, if you've ever seen The Gangs of New York, seen The Gangs of New York? Yeah. Are you familiar? Nastasia, like, Nastasia and I have kind of a love-love, not wanting to be friends with, uh, what, what's his name? Um, Daniel Day-Lewis. Like, oh, yeah. We love the idea Wait. of Daniel Day-Lewis, but don't want to be his friend. Tell, I want to observe him. the hardest him. movie he'll ever work on. Yeah, yeah. He has to play like a normal father. Just a guy. <laughs> Just like a guy. Average From dad. Hohokus, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. In Hohokus, New Jersey. <laughs> Mawa. Let's have a catch, son. <laughs> no, no, no. We need another take. That's not working. <laughs> yeah, 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 it's not working. <laughs> it's not working. Anyway, so like one of the memorable things about that movie was uh, was Daniel Day Lewis playing a character named Bill the Butcher Pool, and Bill the Butcher Pool wore a very distinctive top hat, and I always thought this was some sort of affectation, but no, butchers so certain butchers used to wear top hats, and when you see a picture of your boy Devoe, oh, who so was good. one of the best known butchers in uh, New York in the middle to. Uh, late part of the 1800s you can see him in his top hat and there are other pictures of butchers in top hats uh at this time which is kind of cool the top hat was invented in the late 1700s and uh people who wanted to even people who were even though it was a lot of times aristocrats and higher end people who were wearing higher class people who were wearing them people who wanted to show authority of all classes would wear them so certain police officers postal people and as it turns out butchers all right do you think New York smelled worse then or now? Oh, got to be then, but I think you don't notice it. It's just, that's, it's like that's just the air. Yeah, but yeah. yeah, I don't know. So by the way, this book, you must look it up. This is one of those must look ups. It is uh, available on the Internet Archive. It is available on a couple of university websites. It's available in Google Books to download. 
the market assistant, containing a brief description of every article of human food sold in the public markets of the cities of New York, Boston, Philadelphia, and Brooklyn. Notice Brooklyn's its own city. Including the various domestic and wild animals, poultry, game, fish, vegetables, fruits, and etc., and etc., with many curious incidents and anecdotes by Thomas F. DeVoe, author of The Market Book, etc. And then in uh, quotes, the subline is, What We Eat. And printed in New York in 1867. And this is, by the way, an intense book. So uh, all the sketches in it, he drew sketches and then hired an engraver to make them. Ugh. He's just hardcore. He was an historian. He lived to be 80 years old. He was born in uh, the Yonkers. And from the early part of the... He was born in 1811, I think, in Yonkers. And he started his butcher business in the, in the 1830s and remained a butcher in Jefferson Market, which was one of our original markets on 6th Avenue and Christopher Street. A big market. Now, nothing. There's a place called Jefferson Market. Nothing. Nothing. Yeah. Uh, but it was a huge market. He maintained his stall there until, I believe, the 1870s when he became the head of markets for New York City. Wow. And he was a sick dude. Um, so... Uh, he, let me see what, uh, this book was written. So he wrote the first book about the market, which is a history of markets in New York and the East coast, which is also a must read. Right. And he's like, I got interrupted right in my second book by the American civil war, which he just calls the rebellion. And he's pissed off because his first book came out the day that Fort Sumter was fired upon. They started the civil war. And so he's a little bit pissy about that. But uh, anyway, so he decided he had so much information that he was going to divide his book into historical and fun facts. That was going to be volume two, which I don't think he ever came out with. And useful. That's why it's called The Market Assistant, which is book one. So this book is entirely how to shop in New York City and environs in the 1860s and what you can get there and how it tastes and how to cook it. It's 1860s on food and cooking. It's 1860s, like kind of on food and cooking mixed with Cook's catalog, yeah. mixed oh. with everything. He has recipes, he has poems, uh, and I'll just say, what I deem useful is gleaned from the daily wants, the common expressions of the day, something to eat, what shall we have today for dinner? This is what he was writing about. What is there in our markets fit to eat? What kinds of meats, poultry, games, fish, vegetables, and fruits are in season? What names are given to different joints of meat? And what dishes are they severally and generally used for? We have had roasts, steaks, and chops, and chops, steaks, and roasts until we are tired of them. Now do I say, what shall we have for dinner? These, with many other exclamations, are daily discussed, and no one has the answer. We, however, claim for this book a comprehensive answer to all questions of this nature. So he sets himself up to be a pretty badass book, yeah. and I have to say he delivers. So, um, and in it are some poems. You should look up, uh, he has a poem uh, credited to, which I don't know the reference to, Eaton in a review of New York in 1814 about how markets are places where everyone of all classes meet. The place where no distinctions are, all sex and colors mingled are. And then a long, like a long poem, which you have to read. But the one section I like is, um, uh, nothing more clear, I'll tell you why, all kinds of folks must eat or die. Objects of honor or disgrace are all seen at the marketplace. So this is the kind of poetry you can read in this book, along with other uh, interesting stories. In his section on beef, which, of course, he's an expert, uh, he writes, um, let me find here. A section on B. He has a section on what different nationalities eat. I don't think we have time to get into it. You know, classic 1800s. Like, liking, but of course, semi-racist because yeah. 18... Anyway, 
he has a, an interesting section on how kosher butchers operate in it, like mm-hmm. very specific. I told you a story about my great grandpa and kosher butchers, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know if I've heard it, but we can do that off the air. All right, right. Uh, if anyone wants to hear my great grand, my great grandpa was uh, a, one of my great grandpas. My stepfather's side was a butcher, and they used to cheat. They they have kosher inspectors. And so one of the things they would check for was that the pleura of the lungs wasn't attached to the chest wall. And so they used to make an incision where the inspectors wouldn't look, go in and make sure it was separated because they had to pay for kosher inspection no matter what. In other words, you're paying the guy amount of money to inspect whether it passes or not. So they wanted it to pass. Yeah. Yeah. Because they could sell kosher meat at a higher price because it had gone through the inspection. So here's a story. This is in the beef section, and there's amazing pictures of all the beef cuts Whoa. that are made, which are sick. But this is a story that other people have mentioned, but I'll say it. The origin of the name Porterhouse Steaks took place about the year 1814, which, remember, is in his lifetime, in the following manner. Martin Morrison was the proprietor of a long-established and well-kept Porterhouse, in quotes, located uh, and known at that period at number... 327 Pearl Street in New York, near the old Walton House. We introduce him uh, in 1803, where we find he opens a porterhouse at number 43 Cherry Street, which became a popular resort. Um, blah, blah, blah. And the porterhouse in those days was not so devoted to tippling dram drinking and the common nest for the loafing or the manufacturing of politicians or corrupt officials as they are at the present day, but rather to accommodate the hungry and thirsty travelers, old and young bachelors, seamen, and others with a cold lunch after the English custom of a pot of ale or porter and a bite of something. Some porterhouses prepared a hot meal of one or two dishes along with which was Morrison's, who must have been quite famous for his excellent dis- dish of broiled beefsteaks, which were universally called for at his place. And hence the porterhouse steak. And it just goes on and on with different um, stories like this. Uh, but I will read his... Uh, he also uses the old term for beef of beeves. 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 So he talks a lot about um, uh, standard animals, but then he has a section on wild animals, which I will read you uh, the bobolink, which is how I got to this book and why we're talking about it. Bobolinks, also called reed or rice birds. And by the way, every weird bird, like kingfishers, are in this every weird vegetable, every yeah. weird meat. Uh, this bird, um, under the name of bobolink, is frequently exposed for sale. This is what you don't understand. Like, all of this weird stuff was available for yeah. sale in markets prior oh. to us having uh, kind of rules for safety and health and conservation, which I'm for all of that. But, like, you could buy anything at these markets. Uh, the bobolink is frequently exposed for sale, alive or in cages in our markets, but seldom killed for the table until they are found feeding on the wild rice uh, in the south under a new coat and name when they are fat and fine. He also talks about robins, like robin redbreast wow. selling them. So I had uh, oh, also, I, I thought Nastasia might enjoy this, white wing dug, white wing dove. It's actually white wing coot, which is, I guess, more of a duck. But I wanted to sing wet wing duck. <laughs> this is a very indifferent bird for the table. Its flesh is dark-colored, strong, tough, and fishy, and they feed entirely on shellfish. The young birds, however, are much better eating in season from October to April. So if you ever want to eat a wild animal, this dude tells you exactly how that when? stuff tastes. Uh. So, Jack, while I'm, uh, while I'm talking more about this, you want to look through some of the ones you've chosen to tell yeah, us yeah, about? Yeah, 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 yeah. You have to look this book up, people. It's so good. Yeah, what do you got for me, Jack? All right, all right, all right. So I have a quick quiz for you. Oh, jeebus. All right. Which of these, uh, these, these following names are, a, uh, the, are common names for a herring? Okay. Alewife? Right. So 
Moss Bonker. Ooh. Whitefish. Bonyfish. Hardhead. Menhagen or Panhagen. Manhattan is definitely a herring, right? No? Isn't Manhattan a herring? And I think uh, a Porgy and Bunker, are, not, are they all? Is this one of those all? All. All. <laughs> Although I never, call, uh, I never call a herring a whitefish, but does he include, does he include alewife? No. It's more of a Boston oh, thing. Oh, man, yeah. Moss Bonker. Moss Bonker yeah. is my new band. Sake cured Moss Bonker. I'm going to get Damon Harjoey Roger from Infinity Shred, who's still on tour. You can see him to write a song for us called Moss Bonker. What else you got for me, Jack? Uh, I just had a, a page of the, the names of, of the plants on this page are Mangelwurzel, Ooh. Martinia, Milkvetch, and Maskell Plant. So give me, give me, uh, give me, give me some uses and or, and or uses for this. Uh, Maskell Plant is another name for a morel. Uh, I... I Let's see. Pokeweed is the milk oh, I, yeah. You have to be yeah. very careful with poke. I mean, uh, let me, I got one more for you to read. Okay. Do you see? I'll, I'll, I'll turn it to you. I'll let you read it. So the interesting thing about this is let's say you have, let's say you're not so much with kind of rules or laws. <laughs> not so much with. Not so much with rules or laws. Uh, and you have this particular pest in your, uh, in your yard. You see it? Skunk. <laughs> yeah, read, read us some skunk. The flesh of this most detestable animal is, I am told, when properly prepared, as good as raccoon. <laughs> I have heard I've the- had raccoon. I don't like raccoon. We should look at what he says about oh, raccoon. Oh, man. Uh, I have heard those who have eaten it say it was very sweet and savory after it had been dressed. I never saw it for sale in our markets, although I have heard of it being dressed and sold under another name. Uh, but the skins of the striped uh, and black skunks are often for sale, the latter being the most valuable. That's you, surprising to me. Do you know what they call horse meat uh, purveyors and the slaughterers of horses for meat? What? Knackers. See if you can look up raccoons, because I've had raccoons and they're terrible. Go, Otter. Jeez. Uh, Otter, I'm sure. Badger, tastes muskrat. See, it's got to be before that. Porcupine, <laughs> possum, woodchuck, groundhog, wildcat. Woodchuck. How's woodchuck taste? Great. Thought, uh, but here's raccoon. A raccoon. Read me yeah. raccoon. Uh, these animals are occasionally seen in our markets for sale, both alive and dead, usually more plentiful in the fall months. The full-grown or old raccoon will weigh from 7 to 12 pounds, the flesh of which is quite, quite rank and strong. Ah, that's what we had, Nastasia. That thing was terrible. That was old. Terrible! The young are better. But I think them inferior eating, and I must confess that I was not in a situation to give them a fair trial when I ate of them. I love this guy. Yeah, this guy's the best guy ever. Yeah. Best writer ever. So good. Here's, here's the other thing. I think. <laughs> All-time he, best food writer. He has a whole section on when and what kind of bears to eat. All I'm saying is, this book is a must-read. So if you have a different classic in the field, Nastasia and I are going to do maybe Appleheads later, you got to let me know on cooking issues on the Twitter what kind of things you want to hear for classics in the field. I have uh, the Bull Moose cookbook. Uh, I, have a, I have a bunch of things that we have that we can do classics in the field. Let us know what you want to hear. But for this week, this has been Cooking Issues and Classics in the Field. Yeah. yeah. Issues is powered by Simplecast. Simplecast is a popular hosting and analytics platform that allows podcasters to easily host and publish to apps like Apple Podcasts. If you have a podcast or are looking to create your very first, check it out. Try it for free and save half off your first three months at simplecast.com heritage. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network food radio supported by you. 
For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.